Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 24 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. Episode 24, we've officially been doing this podcast thing for one year. So today we're going to talk about a question we get a lot that is not just related to the dental world, but if you're buying a business, you're going to think about this. It's something our buyers say is one of the more challenging aspects of a transition. And honestly, there isn't a one size fits all answer to this. It's what do you do? How do you manage the employees of the practice that you're buying? Comps, schedules, when to tell them, when not to tell them, what to say. There's a lot to talk about here and I think some real world application. But before we dive in, I thought we could give a little update on ourselves. Please. So I have been a traveling person yes, for you have. one month, yeah. and now I'm home. You've had fun. I'm home for the next nine. Do tell. Um, Colorado. Went and saw Casey Musgraves at Red Rocks. Bragger. Bragger. Fantastic. <laughs> it was so good. Went on a little girls trip to the river, went to the Frio River. And if you're from Texas, it's super cold in the south with my family. So we've just had a great time, but I'm kind of ready to be home. I for get a period it. Of time. I get Back it. Back in Texas heat. I just came back from Sayulita, Mexico, and we took the family of eight. And this is where, if you know me, and I've done this in lecture, this was a family trip. Okay, these are not vacation. vacation. No. Vacation is when Roxanne and I go together, Mm -hmm. and then you know the waiter and waitress's name. They know you, and they bring you drinks all day. Okay? This is a vacation. I need a vacation from my family. (laughs) I love my family, but when we were gone for eight days, I'm in charge of every meal, every this, every that. Kind of like being an owner. Yeah, it's kind of like being an owner. Just, I need a little vacation. <laughs> so, yeah, I am back. And, and be honest, I'm kind of happy to be back. Yeah. I really am. That's a long time to be away. There's a little bit of comfort in the schedule. I like it. I'm rested now. And uh, so we were just talking as we prepared to record this episode, and we were talking about how it is episode 24, and we've been doing this for yes, a year, which yes. is crazy. And we found that there is one individual listener who has listened to one of the episode 13 times. <laughs> and I am that cracks me up. so impressed with that yes. person. They, We're committed. They need to come and do a guest episode uh, and teach that episode because they probably know it better than we do. Yeah. But we love doing this. And so thanks again for listening. So, yeah. Hey, you've got the most important part of what? that. We crossed 21,000 plays. 21,000 plays in one year. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. All right. As my husband said, I'm surprised one person listens to you. Yeah. So. I, this, this week I was in uh, Pennsylvania and they said, yeah, I was looking at New Year Familiar and then I realized... You're the guy on the podcast. You and Christy. <laughs> True story. We met. We met. And so I didn't impress her because I was a speaker at this mm-hmm. national conference. Mm-hmm. She was impressed by me because I was on a podcast. You're on a podcast. <laughs> Just call us the Sharon Sunny of Dental Transitions. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. So let's dive into this. So one of the things that once the letter of intent's done and we're moving along on the transition, there's always this point in time where regardless of who we're working with, the buyer or seller, the realization that they're going to have to either meet the staff or they're going to have to tell the staff about this monumental thing that is about to happen to them, right? And before we dive into when to tell them and how, because all that's super critical and timing of that, one of the biggest questions we get in the legal documents, and that's normally when this question and all these worries start coming up, 
is in most legal documents, it's going to say you technically have to terminate the employees and then rehire them. So the seller buyers them and the buyer rehires them. Well, that language really, really puts people on alarm. They're like, I have to fire them and all this anxiety. It is just a technicality. It's a term. You're not buying the entity of the seller. You're buying the assets and the employees are those assets. So the seller has to terminate them from his entity so that you can rehire them and pay them. That's really all it means. And so it's not a formal thing. I always say most employees, other than the fact that they get two W-2s at the end of the year, don't even know that this happened. I mean, clearly they know a new person is in charge, but they don't know the inner workings of the transition and that they were fired and then rehired. So don't be alarmed by that when you get there. But I think it's important to understand when we make these introductions to staff, because there's always this, a buyer wants it to happen immediately. A seller sometimes can be real timid about doing it before the money he's actually in their account. There's generally, I think, three groupings of people, right? They kind of come into this. And so tell me three examples, right? We have three hypothetical sellers and that'll hopefully help us talk about when to tell the employees in each of those situations. Yes. I was going to comment too about when you first become the owner of the practice and that legality, now you get your S corp set up and then typically you're going to rehire all those employees. Part of that reason is for just benefit to you. So first of all, you don't want the liability of that original corporation. Second of all, now that you have new employees, you can set up a pension plan. There are rules of now that may be a waiting period before they're allowed to get in. There's a lot of creativity from a planning standpoint. That's typically where we get our team involved to help you as a buyer. So certainly there's a lot of questions that go on back there with the entity, what structure and when. Mm-hmm. So we certainly want to be yep. there to help and help you in that transition Absolutely. period. And when we make this introduction to the team, to the staff, however the correct term is, I often think about there's like three different groups of people. And it's like the guy or gal that is coming back to the practice that maybe everybody knew or perhaps it's somebody you've been courting. I would think of this person as kind of like the D4 that's going to come back in and purchase the practice. So we're having that conversation with the team of this is maybe the person. And then you've got maybe somebody's a little bit further along. They maybe they've been out and the seller doesn't feel quite comfortable introducing the team to this new person. And so what the seller wants to do is maybe have a letter of intent, maybe even the legal documents signed saying that you're going to purchase that practice and you're going to purchase that practice maybe effective December and now or in the month of October. So at that point that you're signing the legal documents October, it's going to be effective in November or December, then both the buyer and seller feel very comfortable. And then certainly that's a point of making those introductions. And then the last person is the seller that has just been burned by other associates that were maybe they introduced to, then they walked away, or maybe an associate that left and just went down the street, or maybe the guy down the street had other associates and somehow they're just super skeptical. This whole thing is working out and they are not going to introduce you to their team until that legal document's been signed. And I mean, monies Mm -hmm. have been wired. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's these three different, I would say, phases. It's kind of the guy or gal that's just out there. You feel very comfortable, the hometown boy. It's the legal documents got signed. It's an effective date of maybe 60, 90 days. Let's start that transition. Or it's the guy that just says, I'm not going to make an introduction until the money is in my account. Yeah. And I would say the most common of those is somewhere in between. Yes. It's the, I generally say, we want you to have lending totally confirmed. We want you to have both 
pretty much be done with the legal document negotiations. And I think that if a buyer, while I know the staff introductions seem really important and you want to be able to go in freely and ask questions and insurance credentialing and or whatever, you just want that relationship to start. If you put yourself in the shoes of a seller, that's a huge deal to say, I'm selling my practice and this is the person. And then if something, hopefully not, but something were to happen and it were to be delayed or you didn't end up buying the practice, that's a lot of backstepping for a seller to do. And so I think it's super common. It doesn't say anything about you or about their confidence in the transition. It's just kind of a a really common rule that's out there and that's pretty industry standard. And so if they have a team, their team is probably giving them some feedback. So as a buyer, don't take it personally or as a lack of confidence in you as a person. And you've also got to put yourself in the buyer's shoes if I'm talking to the seller. The buyer maybe is working over here making $200,000 as the associate. They have to give this 60, 90, 120-day notice, and then they don't want to do it until they have confirmed legal documents signed. And so they need some assurances on their side. So we are constantly going back and forth with not just the emotions, but honestly just helping with the risk. What I often refer to what we do for a living is we help people in the risk just to make them more calculated. Our goal is to get you the end game with the least amount of risks as possible. Absolutely. And so, you know, once you have decided, I would say most times a buyer and a seller at some point will kind of plan on, okay, this is when we're going to tell the staff. Yes. And there's a meeting date set up in the future. We have some hints that hopefully sometimes might seem like common sense, but I think are really important that you do this correctly. When do you actually tell them and how does that communication happen? So, First things first, please do not do this on a Friday as the last thing before they go home or before Thanksgiving week when they're going to have a whole week off. Do not give them the whole week or weekend to sit and stew or sit and muddle and make up whomever this person is going to be that's going to now take over from the person they love and adore and have been so loyal to. You want to give them as much knowledge as you can and then set up a plan for the buyer to come in soon after. So we don't like Fridays. We like some kind of evening, something end of day is probably best, not beginning of the day in your morning huddle when you only have 15 minutes for the first patient or midday. You really want time to, it's probably going to be an emotional conversation for you and maybe for them. And so for you to be able to explain everything and then for there to be unlimited amount of time for them to stay and ask questions and have that dialogue back and forth. And then in that meeting, you want to be able to tell them, hey, John, the new buyer is going to be here tomorrow during lunch. And I've blocked off some time for us all to like talk with him and you guys can talk Mm one-on-one. So the communication skills is how you say that, how a seller delivers that message to their staff is so, so important. Much like in your patient letter, when you write your patient letter, you're going to talk about how it was bittersweet and you've been thinking about this for a long time and you've searched for this person. I mean, that is the same message you're going to give to your staff. And, you know, they know that you're not going to work forever. They know in their hearts that one day you're probably going to retire. And so it's not going to be a shock that you're retiring for most people, at least. 
but just it is going to be a shock of, okay, the day is here that I've known is probably coming. You know, as much as you can communicate that and why and how it's going to infect them and how long you've searched. And I've been speaking with John for the last three months and I really love him and I met his wife and, you know, he has two kids or, you know, whatever it is about that person that you think would help them connect with your staff. You've got to put that out there. In this, of the hundred plus deals that we will do this year, either the seller or buyer has this question of how do we introduce this young person to my team? And yep. what do I say to my staff? You know, what do I do? Yep. And so it's important, as Chrissy was talking about, just how that is clearly communicated. And it's just from the heart. This is what's important to me and my business. And for our young audience that's looking to go into these practices, you have to know that they're looking for a leader. They're looking for confidence. So you got to go into that meeting with confidence and excitement and just gratitude of being able to help with the transition of his or her's life's work. And the fact is it's their practice, meaning the team. This is your practice. I'm just going to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And just how excited you are and doing your homework with those each individual employees go in, you know, you and your spouse just have that spouse just drill you on having a picture of Casey, the assistant, and she's 31 and she's married and she has two kids and a dog and she's been there for 12 years and anything about her and it's a flash card that you know and so when you walk in on that first Wednesday at lunch or that evening when you're meeting with them mm -hmm. you go in with confidence and say Dr. Jones has told me a lot about you correct me if I'm wrong I'm pretty sure you have a three-year-old so-and-so and so and I think he plays soccer if I'm not mistaken right and that is going to quickly get that buy-in from that entire team of how much you care. I'm telling you this thing will take off and the transition will be so much smoother. Yep. And I think not only the soft details of the person too, but you have to remember, this is something that you and the seller have gotten accustomed to over the last however many months you've been talking and negotiating. This is the first time that they are hearing of the change. Change is hard. And immediately as a human, we go to, how does this impact me? Mm -hmm. My comp, benefits, Insurance. I've got this trip planned next week, and Doctor, you know, Smith had said it was okay. Are you going to be okay with it? So, do your homework about the person, but also do your homework about what is being offered from a benefit package because right. you will get those questions. And what are you going to do? Make sure you have thought through. I'm going to keep everything the same, or I'm going to change it, or how are you going to answer those questions? Because what they want is to feel secure in you as a person, and they want their job to feel secure. Yeah, on that, we typically, if we represent you, certainly you're going to know the numbers. If we're guiding you, we're typically going through who we're keeping. You know, in the practice, typically we're telling not to make any major changes there. But as long as you're going into that meeting with the team, uh, look, we're not making any changes. All the benefits and all that are going to stay the same. I'm super excited. I'm actually excited to meet with you one-on-one -on -one to listen to what some of the goals and changes you even like in the practice that we can try to incorporate in the next year or so, I'd love to hear your feedback yeah. there. And do not underestimate the power of maybe a box of donuts or bagels or anyway. lunch or cookies. I mean, the little things like that, just little touches of, oh, he went out and got us, you know, a whole spread for lunch for the meeting. Those things go a long way. Yeah. If you know that the senior doctor is having that meeting on, let's say, a Tuesday night and the meeting is going to be next Monday evening where everyone is going to dinner to get to know everybody... At the point in time he has he or she has the meeting in the evening on whatever Tuesday, then on Wednesday there's this bouquet of flowers and maybe some some cookies and things like that. It says, you know, team's super excited about our Monday dinner. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. It's like, oh he's so sweet. You know, he's mm -hmm. so thoughtful. She is so thoughtful. How come you haven't done that? You haven't done you haven't even said thank you in the last twenty years. <laughs> yeah, very, very good point. 
Yep. And so I would say that how you do it and really thinking through that is probably the most important piece. Yes. But then clearly, like I said, you have to do your homework and you have to get into the nitty gritty of like all of the different benefits that the staff are offered or may be offered and the questions they're going to get. So that's what we're going to dive into now. So first and foremost, the first, clearly the thing everyone thinks about the most is compensation. What are the staff paid? Are they overpaid? Are they underpaid? Retirement plan contributions? Like there's all of this financial stuff that we really have to understand. And I think I'm going to let you tackle this piece of it and I'm going to tackle the rest. Okay. So again, we're purchasing these practices. You got all different types of extremes. So I want to give you an example. Let's say it's a smaller GP practice and we've got the staff cost of 32%. So basically what's taking place is we are paying our team $160,000 for maybe those four employees. Well, of course your staff cost is really high because it's a lower producing practice. Our goal, and when you can really leverage all of your individual people, is typically when you are generating seven, $800,000 of collections or greater, we're gonna be able to get our staff costs down to a very reasonable number. On our site, if you were to download how does your practice compare report, what you'll find is our average GP has about a 21% staff cost. And it's even broken down by front desk, it's broken down by assistants and even hygienists. We've got average in pedo at 19, average in ortho of 18, and our perios and surgeons are also in that run at 17 range. So I think it's really important first you have to know the global picture of what you're striving for as far as your direct cost employees. Then you can dive deeper as a new business owner and figure out those individual departments from a front desk or from assistance or if it is a GP practice, you know, or, or pedo, if it has hygiene, then you can dive into those individual departments. Then to look where are we overstaffed in the department. Mm -hmm. Then you can make your analysis with maybe some changes that we can do there. Or maybe it's simply back to my 500 GP practice that had $160,000 staff cost. Well, all you got to do is be able to say with the same four people, I was able to do 750 collections. Now, all of a sudden with that same 750, with the same $160,000 that I'm paying my people, I've got a 21%. So that's where you know yeah. maybe the guy or gal had a really bad year. Maybe he was sick. Maybe she was sick. The practice went down. They were doing 600, 700 the previous year, two years before, the same four people. Let's keep the same four. We know we can do it, and then we can kind of take off. So before we get into 32% is overpaid and this and that, just going to let people go, you really have to look at the departments and then the overall big picture, and then we tackle it from there. Yeah, because you can have overpaid staff that are just truly overpaid, and there's nothing that I would tell you to do about that when you buy this practice. You're going to buy this practice understanding with the knowledge that my staff are overpaid. Maybe there's a reason they're overpaid. Maybe it's really hard to find really good people geographically wherever your practice is, and so in order to keep them, you have to overpay them, right? Good point. Maybe Jen, who's been at the front desk, for 35 years, knows everything about the practice. And so I would say keep her as long as she stays because she's going to help you. And then if in six, nine months after you buy the practice and then you figure out someone's not doing a good job or she retires, well, then you can make natural organic changes to get your staff costs back in line. But 
as you said, I think it's important to understand globally what is my staff cost, individually, by department, which ones are not as efficient as the others, where can I gain maybe some expense back, or just kind of understanding this is what it is and this is why, I think is half the battle there. Yeah, you could be in downtown Seattle and you've got Microsoft and Google or somebody like that that's just eating up all of the good quality people. You may have to spend $35 for a front desk person. You could be in Washington, D.C. and have to pay a hygienist $85,000, $90,000 a year. It just depends. Yep. So you can't just look at that number. You have to also look to see what they what they produce. I don't really care if someone's getting paid $35 an hour as an assistant or front desk or $90 an hour hygienist, as long as globally it makes sense. Yeah. And if you have the opposite problem, well, then you just get to be the great guy who's underpaid the staff and you all get a raise and then you are the winner. So that's not as big of a problem there. Retirement plans and contributions, like we said in the beginning, you are not buying the entity of the seller or if you're a seller, you're not selling your entity. So you're not selling your retirement plan. Now, if your staff... If you're buying a practice and the staff is used to getting a 3% safe harbor or you have a defined benefit plan, so they're used to getting kind of a bigger match, the buyer is not going to likely be able to do everything you're doing. And even if they are, there's probably going to be some lag time before they get that set up. It's rare to see a buyer come in and have something set up on day one. So I think the communication to the staff, if I'm buying one, if you're a seller and your practices and you're selling and you have those retirement plans, Staff get to keep those, right? Those get to be rolled over into another IRA on their own, right? So they don't lose that money. If you're buying a practice where the staff has historically had that, I think the communication to the staff is... I anticipate and plan to set up a retirement plan. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm going to do everything I can to match what Dr. Smith was doing. And I think that staff understand that. And again, if you plan to not set up anything, then maybe that's a different conversation. But if your intent is to set something up, it's just timing-wise, just communicating that is really important. Yeah, when I, when I talk about that compensation as a percentage, so we're, we're talking about just the salary. Mm-hmm. So then on top of a 21% example I used earlier for GPs is an amazing goal. You would also add on you know, approximately 2% of Social Security tax and then the other benefits like uh, the health or maybe the other benefits uh, like the retirement plan. So we're just talking straight salary as a percentage of collections to get those types of percentages. Absolutely. And so other things that I think sometimes are more important, or maybe not more, but just as important as compensation. So vacation, we talk about that real quick. So in my experience, there are not a lot of practices where the staff just get too much vacation, right? Usually it's a pretty standard two to three weeks or after you've been there a year, you get the number of hours you work on average. I mean, there's there's always some kind of formula. What will happen with vacation in a transition is the seller will be responsible with anything they owe those employees up till close. So if you close in June and you typically give your staff two weeks of vacation a year, For ease of numbers, seller is going to be responsible for paying them for a week. Regardless if they've taken that week, let's say they haven't taken any, but they're owed that, the seller at closing has to pay the employees out for that amount, right? So they're essentially getting that week of vacation. You as a buyer then are responsible for kind of picking up wherever they've left off. So if it was two weeks, you would be responsible for giving them the option for a week over the next six months. And so I would say if one, understand what they've historically been offered 
And unless there is something wrong with that, meaning if you come in and a seller said, oh, I give them eight weeks of paid vacation, well, that's clearly not normal. And we would have to talk about if you're going to continue that. But unless it's something dramatic, I would say you keep the same policies in place, especially if it's in mid-year. I mean, these employees have probably planned their trips or kids' schedules, school schedules. And the worst thing you can do is take away the time that they thought they had in the future to take off. And so you uphold whatever the seller has been doing. And again, that conversation is, we're just going to keep doing exactly what Dr. Smith has done as far as vacation and scheduling. As I learn more about you guys and as I learn more about the practice, beginning of the year, we'll talk about what's going to be offered and kind of how things may change, if at all. Because you may not choose to change anything, but you want to set the expectation that there may be changes. But right now, I'm going to do everything the same. And again, that gives them that comfort. Yeah, it's like one of these details at the 11.58 hour. You know, this is this is the Christy Ratcliffe dealing with these issues. Mm-hmm. What about this out? What about this? Well, and sometimes I understand the hesitation. And sometimes this is something that shocks sellers because they're not anticipating that they have to pay out these benefits, right? They don't know that they let Joan build up three weeks of accrued vacation that she was going to take off. And that's a liability that now they have to pay out to Joan before they close. And so, you know, and I think most sellers and buyers understand that and think it's fair. It's just something that you don't think about. It's one of those intricacies that we're also focused on the price and work back and retreatment that these employee issues sometimes get kind of lost in the shuffle until the end. But ultimately, I think they're your most important asset. And so we have to really think and be cautious about how we deal with them. So let's see. Next is insurance. So I would say, I mean, tell me if you think differently, Charles, I would say 50% of the practices we deal with offer health insurance to their employees. If you're buying a practice or you're selling a practice, really, if you're buying a practice where the seller has provided insurance, I think that that is important to continue to do if cost-wise feasible for you. An insurance affiliate that we have, I reached out to her and work with her often. And one of the things that she always says is on average for a dental practice, usually it's around $250 per employee per month if you're offering a health insurance plan. Mm -hmm. And in most states, if you're going to offer an insurance plan to one person or yourself as part of a group policy, you have to offer it to all eligible employees to not get in trouble. So keep that in mind that, you know, it can't be a one-off. You can't offer just one person. Most insurance agents that I've worked with will also tell you, you can't formally say I'm offering you this additional amount per month for health insurance unless you're offering the policy. So there's a lot of rules, different states. The important thing is if your employees are used to it and they're relying on that coverage, that can be a big negative to take it away. So this is one of those things you want to try to have at closing so there's not a lapse in coverage and the seller is going to be your best resource if they've offered it. They probably have a broker. They probably have a plan. You need to understand what they've offered and you need to get that set up so it's an effective close. Also, typically we have on the pro forma statement already looked at this practice, already looked to see what the cash flows and over has and already have built in what amount of the benefit that was going to go to the senior doctor. And that's that normalization process. So if it was a $20,000 of insurance expense and $12,000 was for the doctor, if we pulled the $12,000 out, we're adding that back into your cash. But we're going to leave that $8,000 as an expense because we as buyer reps know that we wouldn't want you typically to change. So it's actually keeping that as a true cost. Sometimes these brokers will pull everything out like, wait a minute, you're going to add back $20,000 to make this practice look more efficient. But the reality is I'm going to tick off 
five or six employees by taking their insurance away. So that's not fair. So that's part of our due diligence is to guide you through that process yeah. and show you what the true net cash flow would be. And there are other coverages that we've seen practices offer life insurance or AFLAC or disability. And sometimes they're paying for it. And sometimes they're just offering the benefit and it's employees full cost and it's just deducted from their check. So just really understanding how those programs work and what you can offer, especially if you're maybe going into a practice where nothing has ever been offered and maybe it's super profitable and that's something that you as a buyer want to do. I think that also builds some goodwill with new employees if that's something they're wanting. Another perk we don't see as often, especially for staff, but sometimes we get questions about it is CE and do we cover CE? That's something that we'll add back in our cash flow analyses as completely discretionary because it's often not something that you're required to do. If you give it to employees, it's usually not on a regular basis. Maybe it's every other year you all pile in a car and drive down to the state meeting. Maybe you you have a really good local study club and so you take your staff once every quarter, but that's really something that if the cash flows exist and the opportunities for the good solid CE exist and you want your staff to participate in it, then that's something you can choose to include and we often only see it as like a requirement or a guarantee or something that happens regularly if you are buying a practice as an associate. But if it is that situation for the last 10 years that you know you live in whatever Oklahoma and you drive them up to the Rocky Mountain meeting in January and you do pay for their husbands or spouses to attend the meeting and they get the one nice free dinner and it's always about a $5,000 budget, that's really important either as a seller to communicate to your now buyer or for us in our due diligence to ask that question to the seller so that we can plan appropriately there. Because again, something you just don't want to take away from that team if they've had a a 10-year track record of spending the night. There's little things like that are really Mm -hmm. a big deal to call it a $15 to $20 an hour employee. Yeah. Well, and I think they're big for team building and just kind of out of the office building morale as well. So Other perks, things that are, I call them the non-written rules, the things you're not going to find in the employee handbook or doesn't have to do with insurance or comp, is the rules about each individual employee and how they make their home life or personal life work with job. The biggest example recently, I was working with someone who... It wasn't ever written down, but the buyer found out that one of the assistants left every day at three because she was a single mom and she had to pick up her kid. And that was something the seller communicated over that was like super important. And she here's why she did it. So all of those one-offs for the various employees, or maybe the seller lets the employees get together and figure out their evening schedule if the practice is open, you know, extended hours one night, they let them kind of sort that out on their own. Like whatever these non-written rules are that help make the office what it is, I think it's really important that you know those things. And then in those individual meetings or that group meeting, like you said, Charles, you can know and and know their bio, but you can also know these one-off things. Hey, you know, Sally, I know you leave at three every day to go get your son and just want you to know that's totally fine and don't feel like that's going to be change. So I think those things are really important too when we're talking about benefits, understanding kind of those non-financial perks. And we do that here at NDP. Always. All our people get special love. Always. (laughs) As I text my babysitter who's with my crying child. Um, Do you need off early? Do you need off at three today, Christy? When we wrap. No. So there are other issues that come up and they're not as fun. And honestly, they're not as frequent, but I think it's important to talk about them. Every now and then we'll get a buyer who 
for whatever reason, sometimes educated, sometimes not, will say, I don't want to rehire all the staff, or there's this one person that I don't want to rehire, or I think that the practice is overstaffed, and Mm -hmm. so I don't want to rehire all of them. I just want to rehire three or four people. I think that's a super risky proposition. One, you have zero idea what the relationships are, and if you let go of employee A, does that mean employee A is now best friends with B and C, and you're going to piss off B and C, and now they're not going to be there? Are you letting go of the one person who's the glue of the office and kind of keeps it all together? I just think that you have to be really, really careful. Yeah, perhaps you're just looking at their $32 an hour wage and Mm -hmm. just thinking this is way too much and I can't justify that. So sometimes you're just looking at it from a numeric standpoint, but I'm telling you, 20 years of doing this, I don't recommend. Mm -hmm. Just leave everything as is, come in, assess the situation, and that overpaid person, whoever that is, it'll eventually get sorted out. Yeah, and if there is a person within the group who maybe has a bad attitude or you maybe work in the town and you know of this person and their reputation, oftentimes the seller knows that too, right? And maybe the seller has even told you, if there is anyone on this team, this is the person that is bad and I was going to fire them myself and then I started getting into this. You need the support of the seller. And if that means the seller doing it before close or the seller having a meeting with the team and saying, I'm the person who recommended this, like you need that. You don't need to be the bad guy that comes in and fires someone because I will say it's happened one time where the rest of the team told the buyer, oh my gosh, thank goodness you let that person go. In my experience, the rest of the time, I think what it does is fuel this am I going to be next? Like, is he or she, are they going around and just now letting people go? So you have to be really careful about that. So just proceed with caution. Well, and you also have family members. So family member could be typically, if there's a spouse involved, that's heavily involved in the practice. So we just need to evaluate that this is an amazing person in the practice. Or a non-amazing person. Or a non-amazing. Maybe they're the first one. Maybe the, maybe the team's going to come up and say thank you for getting rid of her. Uh, thank you for getting rid of him. So we have to look at what the the compensation is of that family member. Typically, it's a spouse. And you got to see that it could be a situation where perhaps they're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. And perhaps they're doing a $40,000 yearly compensation type of value to the practice. They're really running the show. They're there from eight to five, four days a week. And in those examples, we need to contract them back into the practice. Mm -hmm. And we need to pay them a reasonable wage until we can figure out how we're going to transition them out of the practice. I've had it where the senior doctor retired and the spouse stayed on. Yep. Stayed on for, you know, a good year. Yep. And if they are performing a critical role in the practice as a buyer, you need them there to help train your spouse or the person you're going to hire or whomever that person is. But what I often hear buyers say is, one, I think you need to talk about it early. Mm -hmm. If you know that person's critical, let's just make that part of the discussions early on. But you can't contract another person as part of the purchase agreement. You can't promise someone else's work for you selling your business. And so oftentimes attorneys won't write in that a spouse has to be there as part of the sale documents of the business. Now, you can write a separate agreement that's like an independent contract agreement with that person and details out, and I would highly recommend that. But oftentimes a buyer wants to see in the purchase agreement that the seller's wife or spouse is going to work back as an office manager for six months post-close. Well, we can't guarantee someone else's work and time as part of the sale. So keep that in mind, but know that it's, again, something we have to talk about and that employee is just as valuable and just as important as the rest of them. So anything else on this very important topic? Employees in transition. I don't know how you can make it sound so good, but you did a great job. Thanks. Well, I think the staff is the goodwill that you may have not known that you were buying 
And a consistent and supportive staff is the key to a good transition and a fantastic practice. So thinking about this, being thoughtful, being educated about how those really big human assets are handled is super, super important. And clearly it's something that we talk about with our buyers all the time. And so don't forget that aspect as you diligence your opportunity. So remember to subscribe to Transition Talk on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And as always, like us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Have a great week. All right, 21,000 and growing, baby. And growing.